Welcome to the June 23rd episode of the Enjoying the Bible podcast. I'm Matt Ellis, and I'm the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida. Today's reading is Esther 9 and 10 and Acts chapter 7, uh, but we will focus only on the New Testament in this podcast. If you have any questions about anything in the Old Testament or New Testament reading assignment, please email me at mattellis1997 at gmail.com. I may answer it on the next podcast. Acts 7. We left off yesterday in Acts 6 where Stephen was proclaiming the gospel and the religious folks didn't like it. So members of the Sanhedrin took him by force and coaxed some pseudo-witnesses into making false outlandish claims against him. The witnesses, air quotes, the witnesses were lying But that didn't matter. They wanted to squelch Christianity before it grew any larger, and they believed the best way to accomplish this was to make an example of those who were making the biggest waves, even if it meant telling lies on them. In verse 1, the high priest asked, Are these things true? He's looking at Stephen and said, Are these things true? But honestly, the high priest was not interested in the truth. He was not open-minded, and he wasn't interested in changing his opinion. There was nothing Stephen could have said that would have changed anyone's minds in that gathering with the Sanhedrin. So Stephen didn't waste his time defending himself. He had to have realized that he was either bound for prison or even death, no matter what he said. So rather than building the case for why he was right about Jesus, he spent his entire defense incriminating the Jews before him. In essence, Stephen's entire monologue revealed how the Jewish nation was perpetually rejecting the Lord and bringing harm to his prophets. Stephen would end with driving the truth home that the Sanhedrin's present actions were consistent with what the Jews had done for their entire national history. In verses 2 through 8, Stephen started with Abraham. Of course, he went back to the beginning of the Jewish race, to the father of the Hebrews. Stephen reminded the Sanhedrin of how God called Abraham out of Ur and brought him into the promised land. While Abraham did not inherit any of it in his lifetime, the Lord gave him a promise that his descendants would one day inhabit the land. So in his initial, this initial part of his narrative, Stephen appears to point out that the people of Israel would not even exist if it had not been for the Lord. They were a special people. The Israelites were a special people because God had brought them into existence by setting Abraham apart for himself, for God. It would seem that Stephen was inferring, in fact, I would argue, clearly inferring that since Israel owed its existence to the Lord God, then they should follow and obey him. He owned them. Stephen said that Abraham fathered Isaac, then Isaac fathered Jacob, and the father of the twelve patriarchs of Israel. In verses 9 and 10, Stephen recounted how Joseph was sold by his brothers into slavery, even as God gave Joseph favor and exalted him. 
this introduces the theme or really kind of builds on what was already said, that the Israelites belonged to God. Therefore, God had a right to tell them what to do and expect them to obey. But here he's also building on that theme of, of his monologue by uh, saying that the people of Israel horribly mistreated the people that they did not like, and the people they did not like were frequently people loved by God. So the Israelites are a people that belong to the Lord. The Lord sends them leaders. The Lord sends them judges. The Lord sends them prophets. And quite often the people of Israel did not like the people that the Lord sent and the people that the Lord loved. And this is going to be what he's talking about. And then it's going to climax toward the end of his monologue when he points his finger in the Israelites' face and say, you were just like all the rest of them. So let's follow this logic, okay? In verses 11 through 16, Stephen talked about the great famine God used to bring all 70 or so of the Israelite clan to Egypt. They thrived under Joseph's leadership, but hundreds of years passed, and a king of Egypt rose who did not know Jesus, uh, did not know Joseph. And we could surmise that we're talking about somewhere around 350 years or so. The new Pharaoh felt threatened by the prolific Israelites, so he commanded that all Hebrew males were to be killed at birth. In verses 20 through 29, Stephen talks about Moses. So Moses was had come out of that, and he was the one who was saved at birth, and in fact was raised by his own parents for three months, and then was raised by the daughter of Pharaoh. Well, uh, Stephen, uh, as he's talking about Moses, mentioned that Moses was raised in the best that Egypt had to offer, yet at age 40, his heart began to move toward his people, the people of Israel. And when he, Moses, saw an Egyptian mistreating a Hebrew slave, he killed the Egyptian. And to his surprise, even though he would be God's deliverer for the Jews, they despised him. See, this is a theme here in this chapter that the Jews despise those that God sent to speak truth and those that God saw, sent to deliver or save them. They despised Moses and rejected his authority over them, so he fled to Midian. And once again, the person God would use to lead the people of Israel was initially rejected by Israel. In verse 30, Stephen talked about Moses and the burning bush. And God commanded Moses to go back to Egypt to deliver his people from Egyptian slavery. Then Stephen pointed out again the theme he is driving home. Israel typically rejected those God sent to lead them and to speak truth to them. Listen to Acts chapter 7 verse 35. This Moses whom they rejected when they said, Who appointed you a ruler or a judge? This one God sent as a ruler and a deliverer through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. Then Stephen quoted Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, and it is a clear prophetic reference to Jesus. Stephen, he's got a reason for telling all of these stories, and he's building up to Jesus, and then he builds up ultimately to the climax of when he points his finger in their face. But he quotes Deuteronomy 18, 15, and this is clearly talking about Jesus. So in Acts chapter 7, verse 37, listen to what Stephen says realizing he's quoting from Deuteronomy. 
This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. So that's where he was quoting Deuteronomy 18.15. God will raise up for you a prophet like me, like Moses, from among your brothers. So when Stephen quoted this passage, quoted Moses as saying that, Stephen tipped his hand. He was going to get to the one who was the fulfillment of that prophecy. He would demonstrate how Israel once again mistreated and even killed the one that God sent to them, who was a prophet like Moses, and that was Jesus. In verses 40 through 41, Stephen recounted how the people of Israel disobeyed the Lord and refused to submit to their leader. They called upon Aaron, who was apparently a weak leader, at least in that moment, and he created for them a god to worship. He built a golden calf for them, and once again they demonstrated a heart of rebellion and wickedness. Well, in verse 42 and 43, Stephen is still talking, given the abbreviated history of Israel. We read that the Lord, quote, gave them up to worship the stars of heaven, unquote, and then he gave them over to worship Moloch and Rephim, and by implication, any other god that they went after. This simply means that God's patience with their rebellious spirit had run its course. So he took away his restraining hand and let them fall headfirst into the sin they so desperately craved. The sin of idolatry, the sin of rebellion, the sin of wickedness. But these verses ended with a warning. And here it is. So I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. This, this is what uh, the Lord was saying. And Stephen is quoting the Lord when he says, So I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. So God's judgment was going to come upon the people in the Old Testament because of their idolatry and wickedness. And we know uh, from our Old Testament history, even as earlier in the podcast earlier this year, we looked at that, how the northern tribes were taken off into captivity by the Assyrians, and then the next world power, the Babylonians, they took the southern tribes off to captivity. They were God's judgment upon his rebellious people. Well, in verses 44 through 50, Stephen recounted how Moses had made a tabernacle and Solomon built a temple to the Lord. These places of worship allowed the Israelites to worship and enjoy their God. He had come to dwell among them, which made their idolatry and rebellion and wickedness all the greater. And this is where Stephen stops the story, points his finger in the faces of the pseudo-religious leaders, and claims that they are doing exactly what their Jewish ancestors did. Listen to him as he speaks in verses 51 through 53. He said, you stiff-necked people. Okay, so what stiff-necked mean? Well, they were an agrarian society. They didn't have tractors and things like that. They had oxen, you know, and other beasts of burden to pull the plow. And so in order to pull, uh, to get that ox or whatever to go to the left, you would pull the rein to the left, which would pull their head and move their neck, and then they would go left. If you wanted them to go right, you pull the right side of the rein, and it would pull their head and pull their neck. But if their neck was stiff and they refused to budge, then you could pull all you wanted, but they weren't going to move. They were just going to do whatever they wanted to do. That's what he's saying. You stiff-necked people. God has been pulling on you to move you to the right or the left to get you back on the road to holiness, and you are stiff-necked. 
you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts, means that God's mark is not on them. Uncircumcised hearts and ears, you were always resisting the Holy Spirit. And this is the point, isn't it, of of all that he said previously in his monologue? Stephen was building a case for how Israel, throughout its history, was constantly rebelling and resisting the Holy Spirit, rebelling against. You were always resisting the Holy Spirit. As your ancestors did, you do also. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They even killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one. See, he's talking about Jesus, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You were the ones, Stephen is saying, who were fighting against Jesus, God's own son, the righteous one, the one that came in the spirit of Moses. He said, you received the law under the direction of angels and yet have not kept it. Oh, so he's he's just laying it out. He's shucking the corn. Well, many contemporary Christians believe there should have been an 11th commandment and that is and 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 they believe not 10 commandments but 11 and the 11th commandment they believe should have been thou shalt be nice yet while we realize that Jesus was generally kind and gracious to most folks he was rarely nice to the hypocritical religious leaders Their hearts were utterly devoid of any love for the Lord, and yet they were exerting their religious influence to lead others away from the Lord. God had sent His own Son to earth, and they killed Him. And so when Jesus was dealing with them, He was dealing harshly. Friend, for us, when dealing with outsiders, when dealing with unbelievers, we need to be gracious, just as Jesus was. Listen to Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, and I'm going to read this to you in the New Living Translation. Colossians 4, 5 and 6 says this, Live wisely among those who are not believers, and make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be gracious. Do you hear that? Let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you will have the right response for everyone. And so when we look at that, Paul is telling us, the Holy Spirit through Paul is telling us that uh, when we're dealing with outsiders, unbelievers, our conversation generally needs to be gracious and kind and attractive. It needs to be that. But when we are confronting folks who claim to be saved who should know better, and who are teaching and living in such a way that they are pushing others away from the Lord by their words or actions, then, friend, kindness can go out the window. We call them out using tailor-made language to shake them to their senses if possible. If they are offended, then so be it. If you're uncomfortable with what I've just said and don't realize how Jesus talked to the hypocritical religious folks, I want to encourage you, just read Matthew chapter 23. I'm going to say it again. Read Matthew chapter 23. When Jesus was dealing with unbelievers, he was generally kind and gracious, and he wasn't blasting them for their sin. He would speak against sin to bring conviction, but he was gentle and kind, generally speaking. But when he was talking to those who professed to be God followers, but in fact were not, and in their words and in their actions were pulling people away from salvation and not moving them toward Christ, toward him, 
Nah, he, he was he, he was honest and he was frank and he used choice words uh, to deal with them. He saved his most brutal of words and names for such wo- uh, such folks. And in fact, we realize that Jesus actually called them names. You brood of vipers, you snakes. I mean, over and over, Jesus, I mean, I'm telling you, Jesus had no time for someone who professed to be a follower of Jesus, who in fact was not, and was using their influence to pull people away. Friends, I'm telling you, heaven and hell is on the line. There is no time for somebody like that. And how did the religious folks respond when Stephen dared to confront them with their sin, just as Jesus would have done? Well, what did they do to Jesus? They did the same thing to Stephen. Acts chapter 7, verse 54. When they heard these things, they were enraged and gnashed their teeth at him. That says they were so angry that they couldn't see straight. And gnashing their teeth is an animalistic way of showing rage as they exposed their teeth and ground them together. Clear, cogent thinking was gone. Emotion was in control, and there was no way that Stephen would survive this. We're told that Stephen found comfort in a heavenly vision the Lord gave him. But even as he told them, these folks that were blind with anger at him for what he had said and accusing them of being like those who had gone before, that when he told them his vision, it moved them to action. Now they're not just angry, they're going to make good on it. And they killed him. Acts chapter 7, verses 55 and 58 say this. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit. So that tells us that his speech in this chapter was good and right and holy, even though it was harsh. He was filled with the Spirit even as he was speaking, certainly at the culmination of it. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Notice Jesus is standing. We're told in another place that when Jesus had finished everything, he sat down at the right hand of God. But here, Stephen said he is standing. He saw him standing. I just wonder if Jesus stands as each one of his followers makes their way through death's door into heaven. His job is done, so he can sit down, but he's standing as those who follow him, and maybe it's just limited to those who follow him and are killed or persecuted because of him, as they make their way into heaven's throne room by way of death. Stephen said, he, he said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Well, they yelled at the top of their voices, covered their ears, and together rushed against him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him, and the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. You ever been hit with a rock? I have. It hurts really bad. But I cannot imagine being hit by stones of all sizes coming from every direction. It would have been a torturous death. It took far too long to kill someone that way, but God was gracious and appeared to have taken Stephen to heaven before the large rocks had accomplished their task. Listen to the last two verses of this chapter, Acts 7, 59 through 60. While they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. 
he knelt down as the rocks were coming. He knelt down and cried out with a loud voice. Oh, this, this sounds like he's recollecting what Jesus had said and is desiring to mimic that as a follower of Jesus. Not that he, he doesn't see himself equal to Jesus, but if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, do what Jesus did. Say what Jesus said. He knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Jesus said that on the cross, didn't he? Don't lay this sin to their charge. And after saying this, he fell asleep. He fell asleep. Now, he did die, and and Paul uses the uh, verbiage of sleep to uh, euphemistically talk about death. But I just wonder if this speaks of the fact that uh, Stephen, before the, the, the rock did its job and hit him in the head and knocked him out and killed him, that, that final rock, I just wonder if the Lord graciously took him through death's door and he opened his eyes in glory before those rocks had a chance to kill him. So this is the account of the first recorded Christian martyr. And rather than deny his Lord or reject the truth of Scripture, he stood courageously as the Holy Spirit enabled him. This is the story of Stephen's martyrdom. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for giving us the story of Stephen. Even though it was unjust, we know from your word that it is the normal response a Christian should expect from the sinful world. So many of our brothers and sisters in Christ in other countries are even today persecuted, tortured, and killed. Help us to pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ that we may never meet this side of heaven. We pray for their safety. We also ask that you would give them the grace and courage to stand up for you regardless of what evils they face for doing so. And help us, Lord, to be courageous in our own country. Help us stand up for you even when the consequences we would currently face pale in comparison to so many around the world. We pray this in the name of the one who can give us what we need to stand courageously. In the name of Jesus, amen. I hope today's episode has helped you to understand and enjoy God's Word so that you can apply it in the power of the Holy Spirit. If looking over the script for this podcast would be beneficial to you, hop on over to my website at mattsmusings.net. I'll provide a link in this episode's show notes. The Enjoying the Bible podcast is a ministry of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida. Check us out at fbcpolkcity.com. See you next time.